Father God, for you this morning, recognizing that you are truly a patient God. You are not hasty and, and do not act without first knowing what you desire to accomplish. You patiently wait for all of your purposes to come to pass as you sovereignly act them out. And you do not act without first knowing what it is that you would like to accomplish. And Lord, you most of all are patient towards your people. Lord, we confess that we demand that you act. We confess that we are impatient even with you. While you are slow to judge and quick to forgive, we are not like you. We condemn others, we condemn ourselves very quickly. We hold others to a standard that we are not willing to hold ourselves, and our sin is ever-present in our lives. Lord, forgive us for not being like you. Cause our hearts and lives to be changed forever. Cause us to long to be with you and to be like you. And as we wait patiently for you, may we lean into you in this time. Lord, thank you for being patient with us. As, as we long for the day that we can be with you, we become more and more, we can become more and more impatient. Our flesh demands that we gratify it instead of obeying what you have commanded us to do. And Lord, we thank you for giving us yourself so that we can wait obediently with you. Lord, we also thank you that we are not alone in this world. This morning, we thank you for Hinson Baptist Church and their ability to host 80 pastors this past week from around the Pacific Northwest. Lord, this preaching workshop was a blessing to many. And as the full-time staff even here were able to participate in this workshop, we pray that the seeds of your word would bear fruit in this church, but also in many churches around uh, the Pacific Northwest. May what was taught be faithfully practiced and your word work in the hearts of your people and build your church here, Lord, in, um, in Salem and beyond. We also pray for ourselves. Uh, as we yesterday affirmed new members, uh, new leaders, and a new budget, we pray that even though we plan our ways, that you would continue to guide us. We pray that our best laid plans would always be made in, in light of a trust in your sovereignty. Give us wisdom to plan, but also may we patiently wait for you to work. And as Ryan brings us the word, Lord, we pray that it would bear fruit in our lives. Lord, may we see your work very clearly in our hearts as your word is preached this morning. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat and open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 8. Continue our study in Joshua today. In chapter 8, storytelling has been part of the human experience for as long as there have been humans. Stories are shared through uh, verbal tradition, through drawings on cave walls, written words. Some can remember hearing stories on the radio. And I'll begrudgingly admit that stories can be shared through TV and movies, even. Stories can entertain, they can pass along information. But at their very best, whether the stories are true or made up, they communicate something that is true. We have a tendency to insulate ourselves and our lives against things that are true that we might fear or not understand. And those barriers actually keep us from hearing the things that we desperately need to hear. 
they keep us from facing the things that we need to face. But the best narratives weave truth into a story in a way that will break through those barriers, reveal something about truth, truth about God's character, truth about our character, truth about where our character and God's character are misaligned. The inspired accounts in history in Scripture were placed there by the Holy Spirit. And the preacher in Hebrews says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The story we're going to read today puts God's character on display. It's a narrative that has God's character woven into it, And if you look the story right in the face and you let it look right back at you, it will lay your heart open and call you to come into alignment with God's character. The title of the sermon today is Behold the Kindness and Severity of God. Let's read the first two verses of Joshua chapter 8. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you, and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. Think of Joshua chapters 6, 7, and 8 as a mini story arc inside of the greater story arc of Joshua. Chapter 6 shows God's victory over Jericho, with Israel obediently following orders from their general. But you know when a story plants a seed for a sequel? That happened in chapter 6. God told the Israelites that they should not take any of the silver, gold, bronze, or iron. All of that was devoted to the temple of the Lord. It was a first fruits of their conquest in the land of Canaan. If you read chapter 6, you might pass right over it and not realize that if Achan had obeyed God's command, there would not even have been a chapter 7. For all the heights of the victory at Jericho, the trumpets, the shouts, God's salvation of Rahab and her family, there were the lows of this defeat at Ai and the sobering consequences for not trusting in the Lord's provision as we saw the trouble of Achan visited on him and his family. But this story is a story arc. So we see at the very beginning of chapter 8, the first point of the sermon. Behold the kindness of God. God's anger is now turned away. After the defeated I, the Israelites heard from God. They didn't need to be afraid to go into battle again. I'm sure they were hesitant after being chased off the first time. We read in chapter 7, verse 5, their hearts melted and became like water. They felt the same way that the inhabitants of Canaan did when they heard the works of God, when they heard about the people who were coming into their land. All were melting when they were not working within God's good order. Joshua and the people he led needed to hear. They did not need to be afraid. In addition to being given confidence, they needed to be given a plan. They needed that general, that pre-incarnate Christ of chapter 5, to lead them into battle and give them direction on how to prevail. This time, when facing I, 
they would bring all of their fighting men. And this time, they would set up an ambush rather than facing the city head on. God tells Joshua that he had already decided to give him and the Israelites the victory over the king, the people, the city, and the land of Ai. Big time spoiler alert. This time, in the close to this mini-story arc, Israel would be victorious over Ai. There are similarities between the battle at Jericho in chapter 6 and this upcoming battle. With God leading them and directing them, they were assured a victory. But God goes a different direction regarding the spoils of this victory. Rather than devoting the precious metals to his treasury, the plunder of the battle at Ai would be given to the people to keep for themselves. The first fruits of Jericho belonged to God as an acknowledgement that the battle belonged to him. It was a statement of the trust in the future provision of God. Here at Ai, the riches of the wicked were taken from them and given to God's people. There are several parables of Jesus that should be running through our heads here. We can pause here also to mourn the way that Achan did not trust in God's provision. He got tripped up by the same roots of the forbidden tree extending out to him, echoing the sin of the garden. If only he had waited a little longer for God's provision. Adam and Eve heard the deception of the serpent. They saw God as stingy and withholding his wisdom, discernment, and judgments. They ignored that they were made in the very image of God, the one who holds all wisdom, and they simply needed to wait, wait for God to dispense in abundant provision. I'm sure that they marvel now like the angels do at the gracious incarnation of wisdom that is Christ, the Son of God. I'm sure they don't doubt anymore as they have seen the abundant and overflowing gift of Christ's very life and body, like a tree of life sustaining his people. Just in the first section of the Bible, the Pentateuch, we see God's generous provision. There's the sun to the barren womb, the ram caught in the thicket, the courageous midwives of Egypt, the riches of Egypt as they left slavery, water from a rock, the quail, the manna, all of this, God's kindness, keeping with his faithfulness. So it's no surprise to see here that the people keep the spoils of this battle as provision from God. The kindness in this passage is a continuation of all of the kindness that has come before it. This kindness is on display because God is being faithful to his promises. Not because Israel is good, but because he is. They were children of Abraham, they were children of the promise, yes, but they were also children of Adam and Eve. Two things were true at the same time. One, God called Israel to faithfulness. He expected faithfulness from them in order to inherit the land, in order to be successful on their campaign. Without trusting God, they would not experience the kindness of God. That's why the first generation died in the wilderness. That's why Achan's sin brought trouble to Israel, because they didn't trust God. But at the same time, it was not because of their faithfulness that Israel was victorious. Look on the screen at Deuteronomy 9, verses 4 and 5. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. 
whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob." God's kindness is crystal clear here. The Israelites did not merit possession of the land. They were the nation God used to clear out the wicked while he was remaining faithful to his promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses warns the people not to let themselves think that their success is due to anything inside of them. He goes on in the next verse to call them stubborn people, and reminds them of the times that they provoked the Lord to anger. It was because of God's kindness and long-suffering that Israel would enter the promised land and drive wickedness out of it. We have an application here. How has God shown his kindness in your life? It's a question worthy of regular reflection. Ponder this during the upcoming week in your quiet time, in your family worship, in community group, there is no kindness of God too small to bring up. No kindness that won't make us more aware of God's presence in our lives. A regular practice of dwelling on, meditating on God's kindness is what it means to tune your heart to sing God's grace. If you're having trouble putting God's kindness into words, uh, use scripture. It's full of examples. An easy spot to begin is uh, looking at the beginning of New Testament epistles, where the the author writes often uh, speaking of the kindness of God in, in their lives. I just looked at Galatians, and I didn't even make it any further. Paul wrote that Jesus delivered us from the present evil age. Just that alone. If God gives us nothing else, but we are delivered from the present evil age, and we meditate on that regularly, that will fuel our singing forever. How has God shown his kindness in your life? You should still be in Joshua 8. Let's read our next section, verse 3 through 29. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai, but Joshua spent that night among the people. Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai, 
with a ravine between them and I. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and I to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that. For the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them. So they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was none left, until was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of the city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones which stands there to this day. Here we have our second point of the sermon, Behold the Severity of God. Here we see the way the ancient Near Eastern people told stories were not strictly chronological. Sometimes new details are revealed or elaborated as the story progresses. I really want to say recapitulation, but that's not quite the right word, so I'm not going to say it. But let's summarize uh, what we just read like this. David Howard's commentary on Joshua chapter 8 lays it out well. Uh, Joshua commissioned a group of men to lie in ambush west of Ai, as the Lord had instructed. He sent them out. Then he went with a main fighting force to be stationed north of the city. He spent the night with this group. He and the people went up to Ai the next morning, which was seen by the king of Ai, he must, who mustered his people to battle against Israel. 
The Israelites then put their ruse into effect, pretending to flee, drawing out of the city its entire population. At the same time, the ambush force was arising, and when Joshua stretched out his javelin toward Ai, they entered the city and set it ablaze. When the Aites saw this, they realized that they were surrounded before and behind, and they succumbed to a slaughter that left none alive except their king. The Israelites took the cattle and the riches as spoil, which had been authorized this time by God. They burned the city, exposing the body of its king in an act of humiliation before burying it under a great pile of stones. The destruction of Ai is part of God's campaign through Canaan. We've talked in previous sermons about God giving the Canaanites 400 years between the time Abraham lived among them and the events that we're reading about now in Joshua. Those 400 years represented God's patience, his kindness, waiting for repentance from their evil works. We know from Leviticus their sexual practices that were in opposition to God's sexual ethic. We know their idol worship. We know their practices of child sacrifice. During that time, God said he was waiting for their iniquity to become full. And then at that point, God's severity would be on display. In Deuteronomy 9, the passage that we looked at a few minutes ago, we see two clear purposes for the conquest of Canaan and the destruction of these towns. One was God's faithfulness to his promises to make a place for Abraham's descendants to settle and live in peace. At the same time, Deuteronomy 9 says that God is driving the nations out because of their wickedness. Their iniquity was full. Rather than the kindness shown to repentant Israel, I saw the severity of God as judgment for their rebellion. What we see here and in all the battles of Joshua are the very unique consequences to a specific group in specific places and at a specific time in history. As Israel came out of Egypt and all through their wandering in the desert, God told Israel that he would drive the Canaanites out of the promised land. The word God used to describe them was harem, which the ESV translates all over Exodus and Deuteronomy as devoted to destruction. The New American Standard translates it set apart. In the same way that those who are allegiant to God are set apart, consecrated, devoted to God, those who are sacrificing to other gods are set apart, consecrated, devoted to destruction. The conquest was God's mission to ban from the land anyone who was not allegiant to him. But this mission did not extend beyond the borders of Canaan. This activity of driving idol worshipers from the land was not the start of a worldwide campaign in all places and all time. It's what we would call occasional. It was specific to this particular moment in redemptive history where God was setting up a land where his people would live peacefully. As one Old Testament scholar puts it, God's violence is not blind or unbridled violence, but purposeful in the service of a nonviolent end. In other words, God's violence, whether in judgment or salvation, is never an end in itself, but it's always exercised in the service of God's more comprehensive salvific purposes for creation. Those purposes, as revealed in Scripture, are threefold. One, to provide a land, and I'm speaking of the conquest narrative, the campaign going through 
uh, Canaan. Those purposes are to provide a land for Abraham's descendants, to punish the wicked, as we saw those two in Deuteronomy 9, and number three, to protect Israel from idolatry. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Here we have the record of God's words to Israel prior to crossing the Jordan, before we get to the events of Joshua. Deuteronomy 12, verses 1 through 4. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, your, that the, Lord the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Then skip down to chapter or to verse 29. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods, that I also may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods." Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Here we see God's strong warning about the danger posed by the idol-worshiping Canaanites. We see that God knows the susceptibility of the Israelites, that they can so easily fall into the same ways as the nations before them. They are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. Their parents forged and worshipped the golden calf what seems like mere moments after God parted an entire sea to bring them out of slavery. They doubted God and fell in the wilderness. The same blood flows through the veins of this generation now in the promised land, and the idol-worshipping Canaanites posed an immediate threat to the faithfulness of the Israelites. They would be tempted to ask, how did the people who lived here get their crops to grow? What did they do to ensure their own fertility? It sounds trite, but FOMO, fear of missing out, seems to be at the root of all kinds of sin. Fear of missing out on wisdom in the garden caused Adam and Eve to pursue wisdom outside of God. Fear of missing out on riches caused Achan to take what God commanded him not to take. Fear of missing out on crops and their own fertility would tempt Israel to forsake Yahweh, their God. And if you know the rest of the story of the Old Testament, you know that Israel did forsake Yahweh, their God. Find your way to Judges, chapter 2. Judges is right after Joshua. Judges 2, 11 through 15. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. 
And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. We find out here that Israel did not tear down all the false altars or dash in pieces the idolatrous pillars. They did not drive all of the idol-worshiping Canaanites out of the land. The severity of God toward the people of Ai and the rest of Canaan was for the protection of God's people. And when the people did not heed God's call for protective action, they would face the same judgment as Israel. With that context in mind, we can come back to Joshua 8 with more understanding of God's purposes in devoting to destruction anything that would lead his people astray. God was not indifferent to the people and the altars and the high places of worship of the false gods because they could cause his people to sin. So our application question is clear. Is there indifference in your life towards sin? Or use FOMO, if that's a better filter for, your, for the question for you. What are you afraid of missing out on that, keeps, that, uh, that makes you keep potential stumbling blocks in your life? Is there some technology, some social media that allows you to be indifferent to sin? Is there a relationship, a possession, a habit, a substance that does or could take you into the severity of God? I said earlier that this passage is going to reveal truths about God's character, and it will reveal truths about our character. Let's talk about two ways this passage shows the character gap between us and God. The first is we might not show indifference to sin, but we show indifference to the people of I. These are people in a city, part of a broader land that God had shown patience to for 400 years. Then, as Israel approached the land of Canaan, the people heard they were coming. They heard their God was doing mighty things. They ought to have put their gods away and trusted the true God. And many did. We saw Rahab and her whole family saved through their changed allegiance. We'll see at the end of chapter 8 that there were sojourners with Israel, non-Israelites who changed their allegiance. The law God gave Moses foresaw this happening and established laws for showing kindness to Canaanites who were truly transferred from the kingdom doomed to destruction to the God who shows kindness and faithfulness to his people. Indifference to the people of I plants a seed that will grow into a tree blooming with pride. Indifference to the people of I is like a plank in your eye while you try to pluck a splinter from your neighbor's eye. You've heard the saying, there but for the grace of God go I, and I know English is confusing. There's the city of I, and I've been talking about an I, and then there's the I. I'm not doing it on purpose, but that's saying, there but for the grace of God go I. Don't answer out loud, but real question. In all of human history, 
Who could have stated that more sincerely than an Israelite soldier on the battlefield in Joshua chapter 8? There but for the grace of God go I. Because they saw days ago, a week ago, that they were the ones who fell because, because, of, their own, because of sin inside their camp. Indifference is a, will result in pride. It was the grace of God that they weren't defeated again. Indifference to the people of I puts you in the position of a Pharisee, thanking God that he isn't like that tax collector over there. You fall short of the character of God when you're indifferent to, their, to um, the unrepentant. The other way we can fall short of the character of God is to resist his righteous judgment. Righteous judgment is the companion to God's hatred of sin. It's too easy to think of the world around us as neutral. If you put words to it, you might say, as long as they're not actively encouraging me to disobey commandments 2 through 10, then they aren't that bad. But commandment 1, have no other gods before me, or the way Jesus put it, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This commandment It's much harder to spot the ways that the world and the people you think are neutral around you are drawing you away from obedience to this command. We already talked about how indifference to sin can be destructive, so I won't repeat it here, but God's righteous judgment follows behind his call to follow him with a whole heart. In our trilogy of Joshua 6 through 8, we saw Rahab and her family saved because they did not resist God's righteous judgment. Instead, they put themselves in his hands, and he had mercy. Then we saw Achan resist God's decrees, his righteous judgments that all of the spoils should go to the temple. And Achan brought trouble to all Israel for that resistance. You fall short of the character of God when you resist his righteous judgment. I understand that God's expression of his judgment in these Old Testament passages can be challenging, If that's the case for you, I want to encourage you to keep going. God has given you what you need to follow him today. He will keep giving you what you need, the daily bread you need to keep trusting him, even when you read these stories that seem so foreign to the way that you experience him today. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. When two parties have conflict, it's because there are are expectations of one another. Think about it, whether it's a family relationship, uh, someone at work or school, or the person who's driving in front of you or behind you, there's conflict because there's a type of relationship. There would be no conflict if there was indifference. So when the creator God is in conflict with his creation, it's because God has right expectations of his creation. His righteous judgment, his severity, is because he is not indifferent to creation. This is important to grasp. Though Christians no longer go on actual military campaigns, like we see here in Joshua, this passage is a foreshadowing of God's eschatological judgment. You could run all of Revelation through this idea of God's kindness and severity. At some point, God will say, enough, and the rebellious will be put away eternally. Turn to our New Testament reading for today, 2 Peter.
2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of, the, of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God's kindness makes room for repentance, but when finally refused, there will be a reckoning. And those who are in Christ will inherit a land in which righteousness dwells. God's kindness and severity is on display all over Scripture. Look on the screen at Ezekiel 18. God says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? the kindness of God. But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered. For the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. God's kindness, he doesn't take pleasure in the wicked and would rather they repent. His severity, his righteous judgment will not allow them to live. Another spot, Exodus 34, God describes himself. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God's kindness. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. His severity. He does not clear the guilty. And there are intergenerational consequences. Now, God's description of himself begs a question. What's the difference between the one whose sins are forgiven and the guilty who are not cleared? Whose consequences will be cleared and who will bear their own iniquity? If you aren't already there, come back to Joshua chapter 8. Back in Joshua chapter 8, let's read verse 29 one more time. And he, Joshua, hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. It could be said that the king of Ai was the arm of the Lord for one day. Due to Achan's sin, I defeated the Israelites. After the renown of the Lord preceded Israel's movement through the land, 
I want a battle against them. The text doesn't tell us much about this king, but I think that our sanctified imagination can safely say that his, his prideful, rebellious heart was swelling that day. He had defeated this supposedly mighty nation and their God. So when they came back a few days later, it was a no-brainer to get after it again. Why would it be any different this time? They appeared vulnerable to Aya's army based on the previous battle, so he stirred up his army. But God used the king's pride and aggression against him. This was all going according to God's plan. By abandoning the city, the hidden soldiers were able to infiltrate the city and then surround Ai's army. Because of the pride of the king, all of the people died. And the king, rather than dying in battle, is hung on a tree, a shameful death, bearing his own guilt, and a representative of all who lived in his city. All who hoped in his leadership were destroyed because of it. God crafted this strategy during this battle with I, but it's not the last time we see him make use of the enemy's pride and aggression to work against themselves. Over a thousand years later, the chief of all rebellious leaders had a heart swelling with pride. It swelled with pride for three days as God's anointed one lay in a tomb. The prince of the world stirred up evil in Jesus' day, stirred up his army, hung the Son of God on a tree. But God used Satan's pride and aggression against him. This was all according to God's plan. By dying a death he did not deserve, Jesus was now able to claim people who were once the property of a rebellious kingdom as his own. He was now the representative of God's people. And in him, their iniquity was cleared. God raised him from the dead into an eternal body, and all who hope in him have life. So back to the question, what's the difference between the one whose sins are forgiven and the guilty who are not cleared? Whose consequences will be cleared and who will bear their own iniquity? The one who puts their hope in Jesus has their sins forgiven because Christ has carried their iniquity. The one who puts their hope in themselves will carry their own iniquity. If you haven't yet put your hope in Jesus or want to know more about what this means, find a member of this church or talk to one of the pastors after the service. We'd love to talk to you about what this means to be, and what it means to be part of a community of believers who exhort one another daily to trust in Christ so they can see God's kindness. Back in Joshua 8 again, verse 29, we see another monument built. Joshua could be a book of two types of monuments. We saw the extensive description of monument building after they crossed the Jordan River, a monument to God's kindness. But this monument was built uh, as a monument to the finality of judgment in God's severity on the people of Ai. Let's read our last section now, verses 30 through 35. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel. As it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. 
and all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. This is our final point for today, responding by renewing the covenant. This scene is a worthy finale to any trilogy. In Deuteronomy 11, Moses laid this scene out. He told them, do this once you cross into the promised land. The whole nation of Israel, divided into two groups based on their tribe, standing in front of two hills. Each of the hills was about 2,900 feet above sea level. All the familiar characters are here. Elders, officers, judges, priests, the Ark of the Covenant, and a copy of the Law of Moses. They offered sacrifices to God, burnt offerings and peace offerings that represented the renewal of their covenant relationship. And the entire law was read, a reciting of the treaty between God and Israel. It's an expression of relational expectations, vows, if you will. And we have two groups on two hills calling back and forth between each other, the blessings that come with covenant faithfulness, and the curses that will surely come if they do not keep allegiance to God. After seeing the battle at Jericho and then defeat at Ai, Achan's trouble, the victory at Ai, I can only imagine the wholehearted passion of the Israelites as they saw firsthand the real life blessing, blessings and curses being meted out. The only response imaginable was to worship in the ways that God gave them and to renew the covenant to remind themselves of their responsibility and God's calling on their life. As New Testament Christians, this scene is very familiar to us. After battling spiritual forces all week, we gather, we read scripture, and we call out through song the blessings of being in Christ. We remind ourselves explicitly of the gospel, our need for it, and the fact that without Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we would be cursed. And we take the Lord's Supper as a reminder of his sacrifice, the one that put an end to all sacrifices for, for sin. In all of these things, we remind ourselves of our responsibility and God's calling on our life. May we be people who behold God's kindness and severity and respond by placing our hope in Christ, in whom is our salvation. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and for your Holy Spirit who decreed that Joshua 8 should be in our scriptures. We ask that your purposes in including it would be put into motion in our lives. Help us to treasure your kindness that leads us to repentance. Help us to have respect for your righteous severity and help us to follow your son closely. Lord, our hope is in you. We have iniquity. Please give us the righteousness that is, that is Christ's. We ask all of these things in his name. Amen.